My name is Matt, and I'll be reading from Ephesians 5, 3 through 14. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of these things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, how many of you really enjoy going to the doctor? How many of you like look forward to that experience? Um, it's, you know, it can be good for us, but not always the most enjoyable thing. It was, uh, I don't know, maybe about a month or so ago. Um, I, I cut my own hair, so if you don't like how my hair looks, that's all on me. It's not somebody else. So I was cutting my hair one day, and uh, it, it had grown a little bit longer, and, and it's been a while since I had cut it shorter, and this was maybe about yeah, a month or so ago, and so I was cutting it, and all of a sudden I, I felt something on the back of my head, and I thought to myself, huh. Don't remember that being there. And, uh, and so sure enough, I walked out of the bathroom and, you know, and Hannah saw me and she's oh, you cut your hair. And then I kind of turned, turned around and she's like, uh, how long has that been there? And I'm like, okay, <laughs> well, if I felt it, she sees it, maybe there's, maybe there's something there. So I made the appointment to go and see uh, the dermatologist. And, uh, I, you know, one day I'm just like, I want to get this thing checked out. I don't want to play around with it. And and see, and so the dermatologist, you know, he checked, checked me out, and uh, good news, it, it wasn't anything. He's just like, you're getting older, and things grow when you get older, so good, good, you know, have fun with that. I'm like, thanks, doc, so happy. This is why I love going to the doctor, but then he did something. He said, I mean, since you're here, I know you want me to just check out that one thing. He says, but since you're here, do you want me, like, you're here, let's just, let's examine the rest of you. I'm like, oh, fun, you know, and I'm thinking, do I really want, you know, to have him scour the rest of my body looking for other things that, you know, could be wrong? You know, not really, but it was good for me to do it, right? Like the, the thing is, I'm there. He knows it's going to be helpful to me in my life if, you know, he can identify something that, that might be wrong. And so I'm like, okay, so, you know, got undressed even more. And, you know, and he's, you know, got those glasses on and looking over me. And good news, he's like, all right, you look clear. You look good. I'm like, so how many more miles can I get on this thing? You know, then he's, he's like, no, you're, you, you, should be, you should be fine. And so I was grateful I did it. But the idea of doing it and actually going through the experience wasn't necessarily the most enjoyable thing, but it was something that was necessary for me. And I share that with you because today we're coming to one of these passages in, in Ephesians that in many ways I'm just, I'm going to be straightforward with you. Like it's not the most enjoyable passage of Scripture to necessarily talk about together and to walk through because 
It's one of those passages that God has designed for us, and he is so good. He's designed for us to look at and to use this passage of Scripture to examine our own lives. And it might be uncomfortable points. It might be difficult to do, but it is ultimately good for us. And so here's what I want to invite you to do. I want you to open your Bibles. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through really verse 5 today, but it's in a fuller context all the way through verse 14. Now, to set it up, you have to remember the context for these verses. In verse 1, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to, to God. What we're looking at in these verses is that starting in chapter 5, a switch is being made. Paul is exhorting us, inspired by God, to say, you are, church, the beloved. God, through the work of Jesus Christ, has saved you. And because of who you are, therefore be imitators of God. That is, reflect his character and his nature in the world. And it makes sense that this is what we would be called to as followers of Jesus Christ because that's what you and I were created for. We were created to be image bearers of God. That was humanity's purpose from the beginning. To live in this world as reflections of God's character and of his nature to the world around us and to one another. So when he calls us in verse one to be imitators of God, it shouldn't surprise us because the whole point of Jesus Christ living and dying and rising from the dead, forgiving your sins, redeeming you, purchasing you with his blood is to restore you to a being an image bearer of God. Not just to save you from hell, not just to bring you into heaven, although those are the great blessings, it's to be who God has made you to be, to live as his reflection. So praise God, the power of the work of Christ does just that, but it begs the question, what does it look to live as an image bearer of God? How do, we, how do we manifest it in the world today in where we live? And that's where verse two comes in. Verse two comes in and it says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. That's the first thing that we're told. We're to walk in love. And it makes sense that we would be called to walk in love because, as he says here, we have been shown the love of God. Jesus Christ, he sought and acted for our good, even at great cost to himself. You wanna know what love is? This is love. God sending his one and only son to do something for us that we could not do. Love, according to the Bible, love that we're supposed to show one another, it's not about a feeling and it's not about emotion, although it's not divorced from those things. It's first and foremost this right here. God has loved you in this way and that love that he's shown you has transformed you. It's brought you from death to life. It's restored you as an image bearer and so now, for you and for me, we are to go out into the world and we're to walk in love because we're a people who have been shown love. Our ability to love comes from the fact that we have experienced a transformative love of Jesus Christ, amen? I mean, do you know how much you have been loved? And it wasn't just God having a lot of mushy-gushy feelings of affection for you. It was God sought and acted for your good, even though it cost him. And so now we get to be a people who can go out into the world and love one another, love our neighbors, even love our enemies. Why? Because we have so experienced the love of God for us. In fact, we saw in 1 John, God is love. 
And so as we reflect his character and nature, it makes sense that this is the first thing that we're called to do. But today, what we're seeing here in verses 3 through 14 is that there's one more thing that, that Paul's going to draw our attention to of what it means to, to live as God's image bearers. These next verses, 3 through 14, are a continuation of what it means to be imitators of God. And the key to understanding those verses is found in verse 8. Look at verse 8 with me. It says down here in verse 8, these words. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of what? Light. Does that sound familiar? You just said up in verse 2 that we are to walk in love. Now he's saying that we are to walk in light. Walk in light. Walk as children of light. Now, we're going to consider this morning what this actually means to, to walk in this way. But, but before we, we get there, what we have to understand is some of the key things that are being presented to us in this little verse. Because the verses that become before it and the verses that come after it are all verses communicating to us what it means to walk in the light. But, but I want to draw your attention to something. Notice how verse 8 says, for at one time you were what, church? Darkness. Does he say that you walked in darkness? No, he says that you were darkness. And this is really huge because this is consistent with what Paul has said throughout this letter. Do you know who you were before Christ transformed you? You didn't just simply walk in darkness. You were darkness. Now, do you know what darkness is always equated with in the scriptures? Sin. And so, as we saw in chapter 2, it says, For you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And so he's saying, listen, you were sinners by birth and then by choice. Every single person that exists in the world isn't born tabula rasa. They're not born with a, with a blank slate. We are sinners in our very core from the beginning. And so he's saying here, you were darkness. Sin permeates every part of us, but now, this is glorious, we are now light. We are now light. He's pointing to this transformative work. Do you know who you were? You were darkness, but now you are light. And here's where prepositional phrases matter. This is where they matter. It says, you were once darkness, but now you are light. How did that become possible? Did we all of a sudden emanate light from inside of us? Did, did we just conjure up the ability to, to be light? No, it says you are light in the Lord. Do you see that? Your light in the Lord. It is in the Lord. It is what he has done for you that took you from the domain of darkness and delivered you into the kingdom of Christ. So your ability to be light now, just as your ability to be loved came from the fact that you were beloved, your ability to be light comes from the fact that in Christ you have entered into light. And do you know what light is equated with in the scriptures? Holiness. Holiness. Light and holiness go hand in hand. And so when you come to 1 John chapter 1, I love this. I love how, how 1 John and what he says there so aligns with what Paul says. We saw last week in 1 John that it says that God is love. This week we look at 1 John and it says this. 1 John chapter 1 verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and we proclaim to you that God is light. 
God is love and God is light. I'm calling you to be imitators of God. Walk in love and walk in light. Why? Because this is God's very character. This is his very nature. This is who he is. And in him, there is how much darkness? No darkness at all. And so if we say that we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. This is beautiful. Do you embrace the fact that you are the beloved? Do you know that you have moved from someone who was a sinner to now someone who is light? Holy. And that all of this is in the Lord. Through Christ to you, this transformation has taken place. But it leads us to the question that we're going to answer this morning. And the question is, if I am love and I'm to walk in love, and that's seeking and acting for the good of another, even at great cost to myself. What does it mean to walk in light? What does it mean to be light? Well, that's what verse 3 through 14 tells us. And we're going to look both this week and next week at these set of verses. So let's go to verse 3. Here's where it starts. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Own in on that word saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now right here in verse 3, at the end of verse 3, we know that that verse is connected to verse 8. When Paul talks about walking in light because you are children of light, do you see the word that he uses to refer to the people who are followers of Jesus Christ at the end of verse 3? He calls us what? Saints. Saints, we've looked at this word. It's Paul's favorite word to use in reference to Christians. He calls them saints. Literally, it means holy ones. Holy ones. That word saint has been co-opted in other religious circles, and so it's lost its beauty. I think it's lost its power among us. Most people don't think of themselves as saints because they're this whole other class of superhuman people that's identified by another church as being such. But and he says, no, no, all of you, if you're in Christ, you are holy ones. You are saints. And like I said, holiness and light are synonymous within the scriptures. And so what he's saying here is like, listen, do you know that you're saints? That you are these holy ones? That you are identified as children of light? And if you notice, he said, there are certain things then that are not, as he says here, proper for saints. Or as he says in verse 4, are out of place for us. And so what we're looking at here this morning is just this understanding, this idea that, okay, if I am a child of light in the Lord, if I am a saint, then what is it that you say is out of place in my life? What would you say is not proper for me? It should be obvious to us, he's saying, that when you see these things, you know that it has no place in the life of a saint. Yesterday, uh, we have some family that's from out of town, and we had the opportunity because it was so beautiful, we, we went swimming. And uh, so I got my three young nieces and my, my nephew and my youngest niece. Um, you know, she still swims with a life vest and everything. She can't do it on her, on her own. And uh, I'm in the pool with her dad, and, and we're, we're talking to one another, and the kids are all in the pool. And... All of a sudden, as I'm talking with him, he's in front of me, and there's some pool steps about, you know, 30 feet past, past him, and we're talking. 
and the kids are playing and everything is normal and right with the world. And, and then all of a sudden, I'll tell you what goes on in my brain. What goes on in my brain is I see this, this thing come into the pool and all I see is the top of its head kind of moving in the water. And I don't know about you, but if you just see something moving, you know, just a head in the top of the water, you know, it's like that doesn't seem right. That head should be coming up above the water. And then my eyes catch uh, a yellow life jacket that was right off to the side of the pool. And finally, it took me a second or two, but I looked at my brother-in-law, Tim, and I said, is that your daughter behind you? And the little wust one had taken off of her life jacket and decided that she could swim all of a sudden. And she couldn't. And she walked into the pool. And the only reason that I, that I was thinking that something was off, because the other kids could all swim, is that I'm, like, I'm watching this little head just, just barely, nothing, wasn't taking air. I'm like, that's out of place. She should be breathing by now. And fortunately, he got to her right as she was starting to go under. And she had drank some water. And, but she ended up being okay. But it was obvious to me, because I see that the life jacket is there, child's in, under, it was out of place. And, and what Paul is saying here is, if you actually... If you look at God's word, if you, if you look at your life, there are three things here in verses three and then three more in verse four that have no place in your life or my life and we should be able to identify them right away. And the very first one that he points us to is this verse right here where he says, let there be therefore no sexual immorality. There's no sexual immorality. Now, before I get into what that means, this is one of those messages where I want us to stop and I want us to think, all right, like now, how seriously are we going to take these words? How seriously are we going to pay attention this morning? I want to show you something before we expound upon sexual morality here. I want to show you something in verse 5 that lets you know that what we're hearing this morning, it's going to be a little weighty, it's going to be a little heavy, but we have to take it seriously because look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Do you hear the word of the Lord, friends? Do you, do you hear what it's saying? If the things we're about to look at are continually manifested in your life, in my life, if this is part of who we are and we claim to be a saint, the scripture is warning us, you need to take this really seriously because you might not be a part of the kingdom that you thought that you were a part of. And so we're not going to play around with it, but we're going to really be serious about it this morning. Like, what does it mean? If, if these things, God's word tells us right here in verse 5, if they are a part of our lives and, they're, and, and, they're, and they aren't removed, if we continue to engage with them, he says they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God, then I really want to know what are those things. And so the first thing that he's going to talk about is sexual morality. And in light of all of these things, when we think about sexual morality, when we think about impurity, and when we think about covetousness, your first point in your notes should be this. What he's telling us is that to walk in the light, let me first tell you what it doesn't look like. He says, refrain from any behavior, thought, or speech that is outside of God's design. What does it mean to not Walk in the light. He says you need to refrain from any behavior, any thought, or any speech that's outside of God's design. Every single one of these things that we're being warned against here falls into this category. So let's break them down. The first one he lists, sexual immorality. The fact that he starts his list with sexual immorality shouldn't surprise us 
at all because when Paul makes his lists of those things that God's people don't engage in, this is always at the top. Colossians, Colossians 3, 5 says this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly among you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. In Galatians, when he writes to the church in Galatia, verses five, chapter 5, verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. Number one, sexual immorality. Number two, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then he goes into 1 Corinthians 6, and he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were, praise God, some of you. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I love this verse so much because it does two things. It says, listen, while you might have engaged in these things, there is hope for anybody today who's going to hear this and think, man, this is a part of my life. The hope is this. It says, and such were some of you. There is the ability through Jesus Christ to overcome these things in your life and to know forgiveness and mercy and grace today. And so no matter where we go this morning, if you begin to feel a weight, if you begin to feel a burden, know that in Christ, this verse says, and such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. Jesus Christ helps us overcome and forgives us of these things. But we have to take it so, so seriously. And so what is sexual immorality? What, what, what are we getting at here this, this morning with this very first one? Well, here's the first thing I have to say. When Paul says that sexual immorality can't be named among us, he's not saying that sex is bad. And he's not saying that Christians can't have sex. Praise God for that. I'm married, all right? He's not saying that sex is bad or that you can't have sex. It's not a dirty word. He doesn't have a problem with us engaging in it, but he does have a problem with us engaging in sexual immorality. So what is meant by sexual immorality? Well, the Greek word here for sexual immorality is the word pornea. We get pornography from this word. And I want to define it this morning according to the word of God as any sexual activity outside of God's design. I'm not just saying sex outside of God's design. I'm saying any sexual activity outside of, of God's design. Because we're talking about behavior, we're talking about thought, and we're talking about speech. God doesn't just categorize sex as just one simple physical act. It's all that is tied up with the sexual activity. Now, if God's word says that sexual immorality has no place in our lives, does anybody know, based upon this definition, what the next question is that we should be asking? The next question we should be asking is, well, what kind of sexual activity is outside of God's design? You have to know God's design for sex if you're going to understand, ultimately, what goes contrary to his design. Now, asking that question is as important today as it was in Paul's day. Because let me show you why it's so important to know what God says about sex. In Paul's day, we said this a long time ago, but the city of Ephesus, in the middle of the city, there was the temple to Diana, and she was the goddess, depending upon who you talk to in general, this goddess of fertility. She was the one that would bless your life, bless your business with success. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. So when people would go to this temple, they would um, perform sacrifices, and, and they would engage in different kinds of practices. And one of the things that we know happened in that temple, as an act of worship, 
We don't know if it was happening fully in Paul's day, but we know it was part of it previously and even part of it afterwards, was that as part of worship, a man would go to the temple and have sex with a temple prostitute as a way of engaging in worship. See why that was a very popular religion, huh? Especially for the guys. So, sex outside of marriage was acceptable in that culture. And not only was it acceptable in that culture, sex as part of worship was what that culture believed in. Wow. So, you can imagine how messed up the people of Ephesus were in trying to understand what's God's design for sexual activity. Because according to what we've grown up in, it can be part of worship and it's acceptable outside of marriage. Now, let me ask a question. We can look back and say, that seems crazy back then, but is it all that different today? I mean, is there any constraint currently that our culture puts on sexual activity? Does culture, widely speaking, feel that sex outside of marriage is wrong? No, it doesn't. Does sex even outside of a committed relationship, is that wrong? The answer is no. Sex between people of the same gender, is that wrong? No. Our culture, in fact, our culture is so flipped up on the idea of sex and sexual activity that the thing that people find crazy and just if you watch a movie or a television show, or even if you talk to people today, the thing that people find crazy is not that somebody has sex before marriage, outside of marriage, with somebody even with a one-night stand. The thing that people find crazy is when you tell somebody that you love them. Like, that's the big step in a relationship. Not having sex with a person. Our culture says, yeah, no, you have sex and you enjoy sex with the, with the person or a couple of people, but man, whew, things are getting serious when you finally say, I love you. And I'm like, wait a second. I feel like the sex part is the serious part, not saying I love you. Our culture's gotten it reversed. So we're not all that different than Ephesus was. To understand what sexual morality is, like we have to understand what God's word says about it. We have to understand God's design because, it, listen, it doesn't come naturally to us in our culture today. So what is God's design? What is God's design? Well, the answer to that is found at the start of the Bible. I'm not going to have time to go through these passages, but there's two key ones. The first one is Genesis 1, 26 through 28, where it tells us that God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he made them male and what? Female. Two sexes, male and female. And down in verse 28, God said to the man and the woman, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So sex was created by God. And it was good because how does the population multiply? It doesn't just happen with a stork. It happens through sex. So it's between the male and the female coming together that God says, multiply, fill the earth. So is sex bad? The answer that the Bible gives is what? No, it's been created by God. But then when you go down to Genesis 2, you see that God is very specific, the context in which sex is to take place. It says in Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. Amen to that. I will make him a helper fit for him. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So when we put these passages together, we see that God created sex. He created sex to be experienced between a man and a woman and that it should be experienced by a man and a woman in the context of what? Marriage. 
marriage. That's what this one flesh union, it points to not just the physiological act itself, but it also speaks to the whole life oneness. And so God designed sexual activity to only be experienced in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. That's God's understanding. That's his good and gracious design. I don't have time to get into it further, but the, the deepness of this is because when you think about how God has designed the man and the woman, the idea is that a man and a woman should come together as two lives into one. And that's not something that happens over and over again, but is supposed to be a lifetime commitment in the eyes of God. It's the sharing of all of you, not just one part of who you are. And so when you use this definition, are you ready for this? When you use this understanding of God's design, then what this means is, first and foremost, sex outside of the marriage covenant is sexual morality. How do we know what sexual morality is? Look at God's design. Sex outside of marriage is immorality. Sex with a member of the same sex, a man with a man, a woman with a woman, is sexual morality. Why? Because God designed sex between a male and a female. Viewing people having sex is sexual immorality. Pornography is sexual immorality because that person that you're viewing, engaging in that act is not your spouse and that is you're looking at something that God says is only to be experienced in the context of you and one other person, not you seeing other people. It's sexual immorality. Thinking about having sex with someone who is not your spouse is sexual immorality. Thinking about it, and by the way, this doesn't just apply to people who are married. <laughs> right? I'm single. I'm not married. I don't have a spouse yet, so I can think about having sex with whoever I want. That's not how that works either, right? I mean, that should be obvious, but having those thoughts is in the context of the one woman, one man relationship that God gives you. And then finally, engaging in physical acts with someone who's not your spouse as a way of gratifying your sexual desires is sexual morality. God has given us all sexual desires, and they're right and they are good to be expressed in the context of one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage. I mean, praise God that he gives us those desires and the pleasure of that, but it's in the context of marriage. Why do I put that point up there? The idea of engaging in physical acts with someone who's not your spouse. Like, if I'm seeking to seek grat sexual gratification with someone who's not my spouse, God says that that's sin. I always talk to young people about this. And parents, I would encourage you to, to think about this long and hard. And what I'm about to say, I guarantee every single person in this room, maybe with one or two exceptions, is guilty of what I'm about to say. So you're going to feel guilty. I'm preempting it. You're going to feel shame. I'm preempting it because you probably haven't thought about it. But I work here at the church. And so if you saw me one day came into the office, and there was a woman in my office, and I was physically engaging her in ways, embracing her passionately, kissing her passionately, and you said, oh, that's not Hannah. Would me doing that be wrong according to this definition? Yes, and why would it be wrong? Because she's not my what? She's not my wife. When can I express my sexual attraction? Where can I express my sexual desires? Who is that reserved for? my wife. But that woman's not my wife. Now, here's where in culture we've gotten so desensitized to the idea of what is sexually pure and what's sexually not pure. 
if two people aren't married but are dating each other and are expressing physical and sexual desires with one another, not even the sexual act, but making out with one another, why is it wrong for me as a married man to have a make-out session with a woman who's not my wife, but it's okay for somebody who's single to make out with somebody who's not their wife? Have you ever thought about that? Do you know how deep the sexual purity in God's design is? You see, this isn't me being legalistic. This is me coming and saying we've lost perspective of the purity and the beauty of God's design and what he says is right and good. And so as we think about this, what he's saying is I'm, I'm giving you this because you are children of light. Culture in Ephesus said that sex was actually okay outside of marriage and it was part of worship. And God says, no, it's not. Culture today says sex and sexual activity on any level with any person outside of marriage is permissible. God says, no, it's not. My good and right design for you that leads to your flourishing and to your blessing is this design. And so I want you to walk as children of light. And what that means is we don't engage in sexual morality and then, lest we think that it's like, oh, but where's the loophole? Like, you know, seriously, I mean, like, how do I get around this? Do you see what the next word is? Look at it. But sexual immorality and some kinds of impurity must not be named among you. Is that what it says? But sexual immorality and all impurity. Do you know what he's referencing there? All impurity. It can be defined simply as any act that is defiling. Any act that is defiling. Well, what acts are defiling? God's already shown us in his word. He gave us the Ten Commandments first and foremost. Like, let me show you a defiling act. God's design for sex is one man, one woman with inside of marriage. God's design for your provision is that you would work for the things that you have in your life. If, instead of working for the things that you have in your life, you take from somebody else what they worked for, what do we call that, church? Stealing. And that is a defiling act. If you go to somebody and you tell them something which is not true, we call that what? Lying. God's design is that we would exist in truth and honesty with one another. Hence, lying is a defiling act. And so, so he says here, don't, don't, don't you see my ways of living in the world are so, so different. And do you see this word, he doesn't say some impurity. He says how much impurity? All impurity. In 2008, there was this large explosion, and it occurred at the Sunrise Propane Industrial Gases Plant in Downsview, Toronto, Canada. And when the explosion went off, fire was started, and then something happened. What happened was that explosion sent asbestos into the air. And the officials in the area quickly went to the residents and sought to assure the people that although asbestos was a problem, the levels were safe. Do you all know what was wrong with that right there? Do you know what the, the residents of the area did? They immediately raised their hand and they said, um, no level of asbestos is safe in the air for us. 
Like, we are not going to accept you come and say, you know what, you know, this level of asbestos, it, it shouldn't impact you. They're like, no, it's harmful to you. What God is saying here is you are children of light. Walk in light. Here's what light looks like. You refrain from any action, any thought, any speech that ultimately goes against what God has designed. And he wants us to take it so seriously because look at the very last word in verse 3. He says, not just sexual morality and all impurity, but also covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. The reason why we said that to walk in light means first and foremost we refrain from action, thought, and speech that goes against God's design is because when we think of this word covetousness, we think it primarily means like greed, and some of your translations probably say greed, and we, and we focus in on it as something that just pertains to money. But you know this word for covetousness, it can be translated, it can be interpreted as meaning dissatisfaction with and desiring more than you have. At the heart of those who are in darkness versus those who are in the light is a dissatisfaction with and a desire for more than what God has given to you. When somebody is giving into sexual sin and sexual immorality, what they're saying is, God, I know what your design is, but my emotions and my feelings, my desires say that I must have this. And so, rather than following you, I'm dissatisfied with not just what you say is right and good, but because it comes from you, I'm really saying I'm dissatisfied with you. And so I'd rather have this than have what your good plan has given to me. Which is why down in verse 5, Paul equates covetousness with, do you see what he says? Idolatry. When you and I find ourselves discontented with God's design, what we're ultimately saying is, God, not only is your way not enough, but you're not enough. I know what's best because I desire more. I'm not happy with what you've given and the perfect example of this is Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God gave them everything on earth to enjoy and to be used for their flourishing. And what did they do? God spoke one word where he said, this tree over here of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. That was my one word to you. Don't eat of this. Here's my other good word to you. But enjoy everything else. And what did they do? They said, you're keeping something from me. I need more than what you have provided. And what had he provided? His presence and all good things. And they said, yeah, but you said no over here. And so when we hear God's sexual ethic, when we see what God says here about what it means to walk in the light, and when we say, you know what, but I can't accept that, that's covetousness. That's me saying in my heart, it's you saying in your heart, I desire more than what you say I can have. I desire more than what you have given. And so it's a rejection of God himself. It's elevating something else to the place that God should have. Idolatry is best defined as this. I will sin in order to get it, and I will sin if I don't get it. I'll sin in order to get it, and I'll sin if I don't get it. And Paul says that has no place in the children of light. It has no place in the children of light. And what happens next in the text in verse 4 is he says, lest we start getting so focused on just our thoughts and our actions being the only thing that God is concerned about, the only things that, that 
help to reflect what it means to walk in the light, look at verse four with me. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. This verse doesn't say that God doesn't have a sense of humor. This verse doesn't say that God doesn't tell dad jokes. My girls hate those when I do them, but I do them anyway because I'm a dad. What he's saying is there are certain ways in which you and I speak and talk that go against what it means to walk as children of light. And what are those ways that we speak and talk that go against what God desires as children of light? It's when we talk about God's good design in ways that degrade, that belittle, that contradict his design. And in the context of what we're talking about here, Paul's been talking about sexual immorality. And so look at the words he used, let no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. When a man or a woman is talking about sexual things and highlighting them, things that are outside of God's design, using words that the culture uses to describe sexual things that are outside of God's design, speaking about people that degrade them as image bearers of God, Paul says, listen, it's not that you just don't engage in these acts. It's not just that you don't think about these things. It's that you don't talk about those things and you shouldn't listen to those who do. And so today's application of this means not only do we have to watch what we say, but it also means we need to watch what we listen to, what we put before our eyes. Because children of light have no place with the darkness now, as I share these things, like, this can feel heavy for us. Like, this can feel like one of those messages, and rightfully so, where you're going to the doctor, and the doctor's like, you want me to check out the rest of you? No, thank you. <laughs> but God's like, no, no, you need to pull it apart. You need to really ask yourself, do I embrace my identity as one who is no longer darkness but light? And if I do, have I compared my speech, my actions, and my thinking does it line up with what God has designed or am I simply following what the culture says is acceptable? And Paul says, God says, that's not proper for the saints. We're not led by the culture in our thinking. We're led by God in that. And one of the things that encourages me in this is that after saying all of these things, rather than letting our hearts sink too, too low, he gives us one positive here at the very end of chapter, or at the end, very end of verse four that says, I've been telling you to refrain, but now I'm gonna tell you something that is a manifestation of walking in light, and it's very simply this, verse four. Therefore, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be what? Thanksgiving. Something can come out of your mouth. It's not that you don't say anything at all. But instead of filthiness and crude joking, we speak words of thanksgiving. To walk as a children of light, to walk in light means that we give thanks for God's design. This church is the anecdote or the antidote for overcoming sexual impurity, covetousness, and all other impurity. Why? Because thanksgiving is recognizing God's good design and instead saying, Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you gave me 
sexual desires for members of the opposite sex, and I rejoice in that, but Lord, I thank you that you have created marriage as the way for me to experience that, to enjoy that, even though right now I'd like to act upon those things. I know that your way is best, and so I thank you for that. It's a way of looking at who you are and saying, saying Lord, I recognize that in myself, I'm so prone to, to want to, to covet and desire and be dissatisfied, but Lord, I'm gonna fight my dissatisfaction by saying that every good gift comes from you. And what you have given to me is good for me right here and right now, despite how I feel, despite what I think. Giving thanks. This comes up over and over again in Paul's letters and in Paul's writing because thanksgiving is the way. Well, I love what John Piper says, and I'm gonna close with this. Thanksgiving says... In God, I have all that is good for me. Do you believe that? All that is good for me, and I will not be driven to dishonor the worth of his name just to get a few sexual sensations or a few toys. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. And so here's what I want to do in closing. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me. I want you to just take this in for a moment. And I want you to consider... Consider what God's word has spoken to us today. And in a message like this that can seem at times maybe heavy or can awaken us to things in our lives that we are ashamed of or feel guilty about, that right now is the opportunity to take it to the Lord and to know that we become light in the Lord. And so if there's anything in your heart and mind today that you say, I, I've not acknowledged this, I've let this impurity, I've let this immorality into my life, I've let this covetousness and the desire for more and dissatisfaction with what God has given as ruling me, now's the time to go to him and say, Lord, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for, for not walking according to your ways and to your design, Lord, being led by the world and by my flesh rather than by you. But Lord, I say thank you. I give thanks to you because Jesus takes my sin and removes it as far as the east is from the west. And instead of engaging this, Lord, I want to say thank you for your good design today, whatever it would be. Would you just take this moment right now and just do that before him? Lord, for anyone today that's experiencing the weight and the burden of sin, even unconfessed sin, Lord, help them to know that there is hope and help to be found in you and in your church. Lord, let us be a place where when there is struggle for these things, we wouldn't hide it from one another, but that instead, Lord, we would embrace the fact that you have brought us into a larger family and that we can take our sins to one another and we can say, help me. I want to walk in obedience. I want to walk as the child of the light. May this never be a place where we look at those who struggle with sin, Lord, in any way, shape, or form and, and say, oh, we're above you. You have no place here. But instead, let this be a place where people can experience the transformation of your word, which says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so we thank you for that hope. We thank you for that help. And it's in his name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.